Now, you've just heard, read beautifully by William, one version of the story that we are thinking about today. And courtesy of Zoe's rather fluffy, tiny bear Bible, I would like to read you another, this time in rhyme. God protects Daniel in the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, you'll pray just to me. But Daniel loved God, so he couldn't, you see. Throw Dan to the lions, is what the king said. But he tossed and he turned all night in his bed. Yet Daniel was fine, not a scratch, not a bite. For God kept him safe from the lions all night. And God keeps us safe. Yes, he does, tiny bear. Wherever we go, he will always be there. A rather strange sensation, I have to say. I feel like I'm reading you all a good night story rather than seeing you in the morning. But this sermon series, we are revisiting Bible stories which we tell to children. Sometimes they're just so familiar that we don't often reread them. We think we already know what they're about, what they have to teach us. And revisiting them gives us this chance to see them in all of their rich detail, to reflect on what they teach us about God, the God whose word speaks into the lives both of children and of adults. So as we turn to consider this passage, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call us to come to you with hearts like children. We come to you this morning and we ask that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So today from the life of Daniel, we're going to look at persistence. How do we keep going when things are tough? (coughs) And this story neatly falls into two parts. First of all, persistence in prayer, and secondly, persistence in the pit. So first of all, persistence in prayer. Now, unlike uh, David, David and Daniel, two D names, unlike David last week, who we read about facing up to Goliath, Daniel is no longer in the first flush of youth. As a young man, he was taken from Jerusalem as a captive by the Babylonians, who had besieged and conquered and destroyed the city and the temple that it contained. And he was brought to Babylon. He was identified there as having some potentially useful skills, one of a a number of gifted young Israelite men. And he was trained by the Babylonians to work in the civil service of their empire. But right from the get-go, it was clear that here was a man who was prepared to work hard, do his best in the role that he was given. But for all of the Babylonian education in the world, he would not compromise on his core identity as an Israelite. In chapter 1, we find a young Daniel and his friends negotiating with the Babylonian official tasked with looking after them so they wouldn't have to eat meat, which the Babylonians would, um, which would contravene the food laws that God had given them as part of his covenant. So right from the outset, from Daniel's youngest years, we can see this determination to cling onto his identity and his distinctiveness as one of the chosen people of God. Regardless of the challenges this posed and the many pressures upon him. Now, by the time we start our story in chapter 6, Daniel's about 70 years old. He's lived a life of faithfulness and service. He has consistently and with great wisdom and merit served the interests of the country in which he finds himself. So much so, he's been promoted to a position of authority and power. But despite the many, many years since he was forcibly taken as a young man from Jerusalem and the promised land of God, Israel, Daniel hasn't forgotten who he is, where he comes from, or the God he worships. 
After all these years, Daniel finds himself facing another time of opposition and persecution. The same opposition and persecution faced by so many of God's people throughout the ages, from Abel murdered by Cain, to David pursued by Saul, all the way through to Stephen and the Christian martyrs. Opposition and persecution by those who see a life blessed by God, but whose response is not to wonder or to worship, but one of jealousy, hatred, scheming, and even murder. Of course, Jesus too knew what it was like to face this kind of opposition and persecution. And he warned his disciples and those who would follow, which includes us, that they should expect the same kind of treatment from a world that does not know him and stands against God. In John 15, we read, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This is Jesus speaking. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Of course, we are blessed in many, many ways in this country that murderous persecution does not form a regular part of our lives. But its absence can also cause us to become complacent and assimilated to the point where there's just nothing unique at all about us. We don't want to be different or to stand out, and so our faith can be more like a helpful hobby or an enjoyable sideline rather than committed discipleship, passionate worship, and a lifelong faithfulness to the God who calls us. But this isn't the trap Daniel falls into, and the reasons apparent in verse 10. Verse 10 we read, Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open towards Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, Although he knew that, Daniel continued to pray, despite realizing the peril that he was in, despite knowing that this scheme was the result of the murderous intent of his persecutors towards him, Daniel continued to pray. Over his years in in exile, Daniel had learned that prayer was a non-negotiable. It was only through prayer, through spending time in God's presence, that he was able to have the godly wisdom and integrity which distinguished him. It was only through prayer that he was able to retain his his perspective, his identity, in the midst of a foreign nation over the whole course of his life. He wasn't going to stop now just because a piece of paper had been signed. So what was it about Daniel's prayer life which so sustained him that it was unchanging, even in the face of personal grave danger? We have some clues in these verses. Firstly, there was an established pattern in Daniel's prayers. Three times a day, he would get down on his knees and pray. He'd worked out that it was not sufficient only to pray when he felt like it, or when he needed to, or when he wanted something from God. He needed a pattern, a rhythm to his prayers. Then secondly, there was the orientation of his prayers. He prayed in a room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Because despite the destruction and devastation of that great city, Daniel's hope and expectation was that God would eventually enable his people to return to the promised land. He would restore the glory of his city and his presence in the temple among his people. So he chose to orientate his prayers 
with this hope and expectation deliberately set before him. It kept that perspective alive in his heart, mind, prayers, and daily activities. And then thirdly, having looked at the pattern and the orientation of Daniel's prayers, we can finally then consider their content. In these verses, we don't see Daniel who's full of panic and fear and concern for his personal safety. Instead, we see a man whose prayers are consumed not by himself, but by the God to whom he speaks. He spends his time in prayer praising God, giving thanks to him, and he allows his focus to come off of himself and onto God. If we want to be people who, like Daniel, can face life's ups and downs with a sense of God's presence and peace, then we need to learn from him about persistence in prayer. What pattern of prayer have we established in order to build regular prayer into our own lives? Maybe there's a pattern that we once found helpful, but we've let slip, or maybe our lives have changed and what used to work once doesn't quite compute anymore. Today might be a reminder to, to reevaluate our pattern of prayer, to ensure that there's a rhythm and a regularity to our engagement with God. And then there's the orientation of our prayers. What set of expectations and hopes do we allow to shape our prayers? Do we pray as Jesus taught us to pray with a, a longing to see a time when God's kingdom comes on earth as it does in heaven? There's a reason why those words come towards the start of the Lord's Prayer. Because that hope and expectation should shape everything we subsequently pray for ourselves and for others. And then finally, there's the content of our prayers. As we pray, we need to fight our, our constant tendency to make our prayers about us, the things we think we want or the think we need and instead to focus on God and allow ourselves, as we focus on him, to be drawn into his way of seeing the world, to pray for the things which are important to him, to seek to be filled by his Holy Spirit, in order that we can join in with his activity in the world around us. Now, having thought about Daniel's persistence in prayer, let's think about now persistence in the pit, as we think about that famous lion's den bit of the story. Now, this isn't the first time in the book of Daniel the king has issued an edict that people are to pray only to himself. Maybe the first instance in the era of an earlier king was what gave the plotters an idea as to how they could get in to Daniel. Back in chapter 3, three of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of the most satisfying names in the Bible to say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they also refused to pray to anyone but the living God of Israel. And as a punishment, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. But to the amazement of the king and his officials, as they looked into the furnace, they could see that there were not just three men in there still alive, but there was a fourth man who, and I quote, looked like the son of the gods walking around in the furnace with them. Of course, Daniel would have heard this amazing deliverance story from his friends, and he probably shared their attitude to the threat of death. Before they were cast into the flames of the furnace, the three friends declared this to the king. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. God will rescue us, but even if he does not, 
What a statement of faith and trust to make in the face of a painful death. And as Daniel stands before the den of hungry lions, it may be that he expressed a similar hope. God will rescue me, but even if he does not. To which the king's response was, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. It's kind of ironic that the threat that Daniel was facing was a den of lions, because rescue from lions was an image that King David frequently used many years previously to describe the work of God in his life. For example, in Psalm 57, we read the words of David, which could equally have been spoken by Daniel in the lion's den. I cry out to God most high, I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are like spears and arrows, whose tongues are like sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. They dug a pit on my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul, awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. And the parallels do not only stretch back to the time of King David, but also forward to the time of Jesus. Look at the extraordinary number of parallels between this story and the accounts of Jesus' trial, death and resurrection in the Gospels. First of all, there's the plotting of schemers out of jealousy and a fear of loss of prestige and influence. Then there's the abuse of a position of power to condemn an innocent and godly man to a painful death. And then there's the stone rolled in front of the den, which reminds us of the stone which sealed Jesus' tomb with the seals to ensure that nothing changed the situation of the man inside. And then in both stories, darkness falls as the stone is rolled into place. And with the dawning of the morning, light and life are found to have trounced death and darkness. And finally, after the release of both Daniel and Jesus from death, there is the recognition that God is the true king who reigns over both life and death. No wonder the early church often used pictures of the releasing of Daniel from the lion's den as an illustration of what it means to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus in times of persecution and suffering. For us, too, this story can encourage us to reflect on the hope that we have in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. The defeat of death and the power of God to rescue us from darkness and bring us into his marvelous light. So what is it that stands before you now as your pit of lions? What in your life has the potential to overpower you and to crush you? What in your life takes you to a place of darkness and fear? Today, may we be encouraged and spurred on to persist in prayer, despite the presence of pain and the threat of suffering, and to persist in steadfast faith in the God who brings death from li- life from death and light into the darkest of places. Amen.